Okay. Um, this will be our third and final session about prayer. I was asked to uh, teach on prayer. And so for our text, uh, we were in Matthew uh, chapter 6. So if you want to, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. We've already talked about um, uh, what Jesus had to say about the hypocrites and the, and the person who uh, also is um, uh, vain repetitions. We talked about that. And so what we want to do now is we want to continue on in this passage in Matthew chapter 6. We want to look at uh, uh, what has been called the Lord's, uh, the Lord's Prayer. So after uh, Jesus had instructed his disciples about what not to do in regards to prayer, or better yet, who not to be in prayer, <clears throat> speaking of the hypocrite who seeks the praise of men and the, and the person with the, uh, the vain repetition who believes that he can earn merit with God by his much speaking, uh, we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer. And, you know, it's called the Lord's Prayer, and to me this seems to be a misnomer. Um, uh, when you read the prayers of Jesus in, in the Gospels, uh, you never read Jesus uh, repeating this prayer. Uh, you do read uh, elements of this prayer in Jesus' prayer, but you don't hear uh, Jesus ever repeating this prayer. So uh, to call it the Lord's Prayer, I, I understand where they're coming from with that. But this uh, prayer was presented by the Lord to his disciples, uh, to those who are listening to him teach here in Matthew chapter 6. I believe uh, he presents uh, this prayer to these uh, folks here in Matthew 6 and again in Luke chapter 11 as uh, what you might call a template or an outline or a pattern to be studied in regards to prayer. Uh, there's a lot here in uh, this um, prayer that's known as the Lord's Prayer, a lot of meditation, a lot of um, things that we can learn in regards to prayer, and that's what I want to do tonight. Uh, I want to simply just go through some of these uh, points about this prayer I'm not going to go into anything very deep. I just want to kind of, um, kind of like skipping the stone over the surface of the pond, if you will, and just kind of bring up some highlights about this prayer, <clears throat> hopefully, so that we can learn something and that we might be able to um, consider our own time in prayer and, and uh, that type of thing. So let's go ahead and look at uh, Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to go ahead and, and read uh, verses 9 through 15, so at least we'll have the uh, passage in mind. And so <clears throat> Jesus goes and says, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into, te into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and, and ever. Amen. Forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I read all the way down to verse 15 for a reason, and we'll talk about that when we get there. Now, the first thing I want to bring up <coughs> is that um, when Jesus uh, presented this to his, to his disciples and to the folks who were listening to him, he says, After this manner, therefore, pray ye. He didn't say, pray you exactly these words every time you pray. All right? Or he says, and, don't, and just pray this prayer uh, when you pray exactly as I say it. Uh, if this indeed was Jesus' intention, then to me this would be a contradiction of what he just talked about in regards to the vain repetitious prayers of those who seem to gain merit uh, or seek to gain merit from God so that their prayers would be answered. And that's exactly how some have turned this prayer into. They've turned it into a, a formalized prayer. Uh, they've turned it into something that is to be recited or repeated, uh, many times believing that, that praying this particular prayer that they call the Lord's Prayer, they have gained some sort of merit or they've, or they've done some, you know, some, some duty or something, some obligation to God. But that's not, I believe, is what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, and when he says, after the manner, he's simply presenting to us uh, a template. He's uh, an outline or even a pattern in regards to prayer. If you'll uh, turn to Matthew chapter, 5, chapter 5, just one chapter back, 
And look at verses 14 through 16. You'll see, the say, the, see this word manner translated in a different way. <clears throat> he says here in Matthew 5.14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Verse 16, this is where I want you to see. He says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That little phrase, let your light so shine, that's the same word that he used here as, as far as manner. Now, how do we shine? Well, we shine by our good works. Does Jesus list any good works here? Does he give us a list of things that he expects us to do? No, he does not. Uh, he doesn't give us a list of works, but I can guarantee you that any of the works that he has in mind are those works that show the love of God to others. So after this manner, that's the intention of this prayer. After this manner, it's designed to aid us and lead us in our understanding about our heart attitude of prayer, uh, what it is that we should think about or contemplate when we do pray. Uh, these words are, I believe, are designed to induce uh, thoughtful consideration uh, in order to be able to even expand upon our understanding of prayer or even, even our prayers uh, uh, and when we do so. In Luke 11:2, <clears throat> Jesus says, When ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven. Again, I don't believe that uh, the Lord's intention was for his disciples to enumerate word for word this prayer but rather to ruminate upon what this prayer is all about. Uh, we can learn from this prayer if we look at it and consider it and meditate upon it. Uh, one man wrote, There can be no intelligent praying, the heart and mind of one communicating with the heart and mind of another without knowledge within. So that's why I don't believe this prayer is, is uh, such a prayer that it's just simply to be recited by rote as like a formalized prayer. And unfortunately, there are many Christians who are trained in formalized prayer. And um, I don't think that's what he, what he wants here, uh, is to treat this prayer as a, as a formalized prayer, something that uh, we, we are to repeat uh, in a, in, you know, a, a, as something that just for that regards as a formalized prayer. So, <clears throat> what do we, uh, so um, as we look at this prayer... And something else about this prayer, too, you can read through the book of Acts, you can read through uh, the, the uh, epistles of Paul and John, and you never find this prayer in, any, uh, in the book of Acts or, or find this prayer repeated by Paul or John in, in the epistles. So, again, to me, that's just an indication that the Lord's intention was not to treat this prayer as uh, something formal uh, for us to recite in the church, but we definitely can see some, some things about this prayer uh, that we should take into consideration. So I hope I've muddled that up well enough for everybody to understand. Okay, so um, with this uh, prayer in mind, um, there's something that I think is kind of fascinating. Uh, I'm sure you guys remember the lawyer who asked the Lord what was the greatest commandment um, of all the commandments. And uh, the Lord said to him, uh, what is written in the law? How readest thou? And the lawyer answered back, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. Again, I talked about this when we talked about the, the vain repetitious uh, prayers of those who, who think that they're going to gain merit with God. It says here that uh, we are to love God with all the heart, soul, strength, and mind. You know, when we repeat this like a formal prayer, you know, it's, it can be treated as a mindless prayer. Uh, something that uh, is just said, and we just don't want to treat it that way. But what I want to point out about this prayer, with the great commandment in mind, in loving God and loving others, uh, that's exactly how this prayer uh, can be broke down. It can be broke down into two parts. Uh, the first part, love for God. And the second part, love for our neighbor, N-E-I or N-I-E. 
that prayer can be broken down according to the great commandment. The first part considers, it, it focuses on the Father. It's express, it expresses uh, love for God. It's expression for uh, love for the Father. The second part, that's about our brethren. Uh, that's about praying for their needs, praying for our needs. That's uh, relational, so forth and so on, and, and I'll get into that. So the first part, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, that covers uh, the party of the first part. That covers our Father in heaven. Our Father. That says to me it's relational versus religious. It's personal versus mere principle of formalism. It's intimate versus the, you know, the, the disconnect of the vain repeater and the glory-seeking uh, hypocrite. You know, John 1.12 tells us, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Uh, the word power is the Greek word excusia. Uh, this uh, addresses one's authority or the rights associated with that authority. And now here's the teaching on that. <clears throat> we, as the sons of God, through faith in Christ, we're no longer servants in bondage to the elements of the world. We're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. We are now sons, and we are now joint heirs with Christ. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, saying, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. That is our present heavenly spiritual position in the eyes of the Father. We are now sons of God. No longer are we just mere creatures, but we are now new creatures in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We're no longer alienated from God, but now we are joint heirs of Jesus Christ, and we are now members of his household. Ephesians 2.18 says, For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. That's why we can say our Father. Because indeed we are his children. We are the sons of God because of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's the fatherhood of God that gives shape and value and confidence to our prayers. Uh, we're not praying to a lifeless idol like some of the heathens do, nor are we praying to some imagined deity or even an abstract religious concept. We are praying to our Father in heaven. That's a relationship, not a religion. That's an intimacy that's born out of this right because of what Jesus Christ has uh, done for us on the cross. The fatherhood of God, and I'm going to use that word again, the fatherhood of God transcends our prayers from mere expressions of religion to loving words of relationship between the son and the father, between the child and their father in heaven. This speaks of a loving intimacy that we can have with our father. That's an amazing right that we now have because of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now, even though all of us, something else that I want to talk about is even though we all can say our father individually, there's something else that we also need to be aware of with the use of this word, our. Uh, this reminds us that there are other sons and daughters in the household of God. Uh, so when we pray our Father, we have to keep in mind that we're all members of this heavenly household. We're all members of this heavenly household. Uh, with this truth, we are reminded to guard against becoming so focused on our own personal relationship so focused on our own spiritual development uh, with God that we do so to the exclusion of others. I mean, we come on Sunday night and we pray to our Father for the whole body. We pray for the, to the, our Father for everyone who's on that prayer list. Uh, Brian just went through all these folks. He, they also are part of this household. So when we pray our Father, it's not just us personally but we also pray collectively for the body of Christ, for those brothers and sisters, for our missionaries and other places. So it's an inclusive turn. It's not an exclusive turn. And unfortunately, many people have turned it into such an exclusive term, but it's not. Uh, this, uh, this, is a, this is a family prayer. Let's put it that way. 
This is a family prayer. The word our means uh, relating to us collectively as well as to us personally. Uh, In this prayer, uh, we include everybody. This is not to exclusion of anybody. So our Father, that's a pretty rich statement right there. It's relational. It's it's intended to be relational. So he says, our Father which art in heaven. Here's another um, transcendence, if you will, uh, that I referred to to either uh, earlier. Now, i got to be careful with that word. I'm not teaching what was popular back in the 70s and the 80s, uh, transcendentalism, I think is how that word is. And that's the philosophy holding to the notion that ultimate reality is unknowable and that the spiritual is, is, uh, has primacy over the material. You know, I'm not being mystical or anything like that when I, when I talk about that. Uh, what, what I am speaking about is this, folks. Um, when we pray to our Father, which is in heaven, that lifts us up, if you will, into another realm. Now, be careful. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Um, Paul, uh, Paul t- teaches that, um, well, I'll just quote the verse. 1 Corinthians 5.10. Uh, f- uh, Yet all, not all, uh, yet not altogether with fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with all idolaters. For then must ye needs go out of the world. Unfortunately, some folks have taken prayer, and they've used it as a escape, if you will, and so they kind of cloister themselves away, and uh, you know devote themselves entirely to their relationship with God. That's why I talked about our Father. Uh, uh, you know, so hard, uh, so specifically. Uh, That's not the intention of prayer. Uh, It's not to escape. It's not to escape. It's to become involved. It's to get involved. Um, We are here to reach others for Christ, uh, not to sequester ourselves away uh, someplace uh, so we can devote ourselves to prayer. Um, what I'm saying is that I believe that when we pray, I believe the Bible teaches us that when we are praying, it, it, it causes us, it, it allows us to rise above uh, the limitations of our flesh, uh, trapped here on earth, uh, rise above the circumstances of life as we petition our needs uh, and, and desires to the Father. Uh, even though I may be fixed to this planet's in this body by gravity, when I pray to the Father, uh, my heart, my mind, through the Spirit of God, uh, ascends to the throne of God in heaven. Now, does that sound weird? Does that sound weird? Yeah, it does sound weird, right? My goodness, Jeff, you sound like some sort of mystical Pentecostalist. Give me chapter, give me book, chapter, and verse. You guys know this book, chapter, and verse. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What I'm simply trying to communicate is that by prayer, we can enter into the very throne room of God in heaven. Yeah, I'm still here. My body is still here. But in my mind and my heart, the Bible tells me I can approach the God in heaven and appeal to him for grace, appeal to him for help, appeal to him for grace for other folks, to obtain mercy for other folks such as Gwen and Betty Arney. I have that, I have that privilege and that right as a son of God. We all do. We all do. Um, think of it this way. The only way to heaven for us earthbound saints while we are, remain alive on this planet, waiting either for death or the rapture, the only way we can get into heaven is through prayer. Is through prayer. And we can do that as we petition 
the Lord and, and give out our supplications and appeal to him on the throne of grace. That's the right that we have, being the sons of God. That's the authority that we have, being the sons of God, because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. Now, does it still sound weird? I hope not. That's a wonderful right, and that's a wonderful privilege that we have. Unfortunately, we don't take advantage of it as we should. He says here, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be, be thy name. In our prayers, when we pray, we are to give the Lord, we are to give the Father his rightful place of preeminence. His rightful place of preeminence. I see two fundamental points in this first part of the prayer by which we give the Father preeminence. First, by worship and reverence. Expressions of worship and reverence is seen here in this first part when we, when he's, when we hallow the Father's name. When we hallow the Father's name. We are to give glory and honor to the Father's name. The first passion of prayer should be, the passion, should be a passion for the glory of God. That's the first passion of prayer. Psalms 8.1, he says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. So as we approach the throne of grace, we should approach that throne giving glory and honor to the Father's name. This passion for God's glory is best manifested through our praise and through our worship, through our thanksgiving as we exalt his name over all names. The word hallowed, simply means to set apart or or to consecrate or to sanctify. Uh, It's to take his name from the ordinary and the common. This is a conscious and purposeful acknowledgement that there is no other one like our Father. He is holy. He is above all things. There's nothing or anyone that is any greater than our Father in heaven. And what better time to to glorify the Father than when we pray? Uh, there's the prayer of the, of the saints in Revelations 4.11 who cry out, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Psalms 24.7 Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory, Selah. That's Psalms 24, 7 through 9. Remember the hypocrite? You remember what I said about the hypocrite, what his motive in public prayer was all about? Yeah, he wanted to receive the glory and praise from men. Jesus says, don't be this guy. Don't be this guy. We are to give glory and honor unto the Lord. Psalm 74, 18. Remember this, that the enemy hath reproached, O Lord, and that the foolish people have blasphemed thy name. The psalmist here in Psalm 74, 18 it was jealous for God's name. And he lamented that the foolish people blasphemed God's name. God's name is constantly being blasphemed by the foolish in this world. In our culture today, uh, God's name, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has made the, the, boat of, uh, the butt of all these jokes. He's laughed at, he's mocked, he's denied. He's made to look like an inept buffoon in many of these adult-themed cartoons that our children watch on television. At one time in our society, this was unacceptable in the public media. Uh, You could not use the Lord's name in vain. You could not use the Lord's name in a disrespectful way, or speak of the Lord in a disrespectful way. But now, this profane attitude to the Lord is everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. It's in movies. It's it's even on television now. During prime time, you're going to hear people blaspheme God's name. Uh, Use it carelessly. Psalms 108 verse 5 says, Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens and thy glory above all the earth. If any people on this planet should be praising God, it should be God's people, especially when they pray. Especially when they pray. They should esteem his name as holy, and they should esteem his name as precious, and they should treat it right. 
uh, when there exists no heart of reference for the name of God, uh, no thought for whom we are to address, uh, but rather, um, you know, have a flippant attitude or a disrespectful attitude uh, toward the Lord, you know, that's not, that's not, uh, that's treating God's name in vain. And sadly, uh, the popular spiritual leaders today, that's what they teach. They teach a very reckless familiarity with the, with the name of God. Uh, there's almost a brazen arrogance in that um, they teach that we have power over God and we have the ability to dictate God our way and our will. That's blasphemy. That's just, that's just blasphemy. That's treating God's name in a vain way. And uh, I fear that due to the popular spiritual leadership today, that uh, many Christians have lost their awe of God. They've lost their awe of God. Um, we carelessly use the word awesome all the time. Uh, we use the word awesome from an ice cream sundae uh, to some uh, thug on a football team. Uh, oh, he's absolutely awesome. And what we've done is we've cheapened this word and we've uh, taken a word uh, that, we, that can only re, uh, rightly apply to the Lord God in heaven and uh, only to his works. And we misuse these words and we cheapen these words. And so we rob ourselves of these words that we might be able to express ourselves uh, about God's greatness and about God's glory and exalting his name. You know, the word awe is only found three times in the Bible. And with each reference, it's always something awesome about God. Psalms chapter 4, verses 3 through 4 says, But know that the Lord has set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. It says, Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and sit and be still. If you truly had awe in your heart, that would promote holiness and righteousness in your life. Psalms 33.8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. That may not be going on now, but I guarantee one day it will. One day it will. Psalms 119.161, Princes have persecuted with, with me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of the Lord. We can derive strength and courage because of our awe of God. Now here's the point. Uh, um, Hebrews 4.16 teaches us that we can come boldly onto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. According to passages such as John 1.12, uh, we are the sons of God. We now have the right, the authority, the permission, the liberty to come boldly before the throne of God, but we are to never go brazenly before the throne of grace. When we pray, are we mindful of the one we are praying to? When we pray, do we address our Heavenly Father with respect and esteem and reverence? Do we pray to the one who is near us in mercy and love and realize that he is highly exalted above us, to whom is due all of our honor and glory and reverence, and yes, even our obedience? Are we in awe of him when we pray? A.W. Tozier once wrote, Before any petitions are allowed, the name of God must be hallowed. I agree with that. 1 Peter 3.15 says, but sanctify, which means consecrate, make sacred, hallow, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Yeah, we should do this daily, but certainly when we pray. Certainly when we pray. We've got to be careful. We've got to be mindful that our approach to God uh, does not become a hurried indifference. Uh, motive, motivated more by our wants and our pressing needs, but rather we realize that we are entering in the very presence of our Creator, our Savior, and our Father. So praise God, due to the great thing that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us on the cross, we are now sons of God. We now have that authority, that right, that privilege to approach our Heavenly Father is sitting upon the throne of grace, but we should do so always reverently, careful to glorify him, careful to honor him, careful to 
hold him in, in esteem as he, as he truly deserves. And we certainly need to guard our hearts against the spirit of this age and not develop this casual, almost flippant familiarity with the one who sits on the throne in heaven. You know, the children of disobedience don't have respect for the Father, and some of our brothers and sisters may not show much respect uh, for the Father. But don't let that be named of us. We need to, to uh, hallow the name of God. We need to come to him with respect and reverence. One thing I have noticed among, certain, among folks, if there's no reverence for God in prayer, this is often reflected in their walk. This is often reflected in their walk. Which brings me to the second point that we find in the first part of this prayer. It says, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. The second point there, I guess you could say it's our declaration of allegiance. Uh, this second matter that we see in this prayer in regards to the Father's kingdom and the Father's will to be done in earth as it is in heaven uh, that is declaring our allegiance to the Father. That is praying the interests of the Father. Uh, the interest of the Father is his kingdom. The interest of the Father is his will done in earth as it is in heaven. In praying for the Father's kingdom and the Father's will, our prayer is given over to the Father's highest interest. We place his interest even before we mention our own needs even before our own needs. When I was considering this prayer and what it was that Jesus was teaching to his disciples, I was impressed in how we first hallow the name of the Father, but also how we are to pray for the Father's interest, for the Father's will to be done, for the Father's kingdom. Again, this is giving the Father his due preeminence. We are deferring to the Father's will above our own will. Uh, what Jesus has done here is to lift our prayer from a self-centered level to a level beyond our own self-interest, beyond the interest of the showboating hypocrite and the merit-seeking repeater, and it's raised our prayer to the Father's interest, to the Father's interest. This is Christ-like praying. When we pray for the interests of the Father, what's important to the Father's heart, this is Christ-like praying. You remember the prayer of Jesus in the garden just before he was to be crucified? What was it that Jesus prayed? Not my will, but thine be done. That's Christ-like praying. When you set the Father's will preeminently, before your own interest, before your own will. It was the interest of the Father. It was the will of the Father that Jesus lived his life. It was the will of the Father. It was the interest of the Father that his son would be an atonement for sinful mankind. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. When we hallow God's name in prayer, we are acknowledging the Lord's rightful place of preeminence over our life. And when we begin by praying God's kingdom come and his will to be done in earth as it is in heaven, then we make his kingdom and his will our preeminence, our interests. I mean, wouldn't it be hypocritical to spend all that time praising the Father and glorifying his name and expressing reverence and worship, and then when it comes to his kingdom, we have no interest in his interest? We don't consider it important enough to pray for it, but yet we'll glorify God all day long. For many, they have great passion for others, and they even have great passion for praying for themselves. And there's a place for this. But where is the passion for the kingdom of God. Where is the passion for his will to be done in earth as it is in heaven? Where is the passion for the Father's interests? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What I read here is a realignment of our priorities of life on earth. This is a statement of allegiance. It's a supplication for this to be a reality on earth. It's an acknowledgement that we desire God's interests to be desired even above our own interests. The Apostle Paul was a man praying and looking for the kingdom to come. 
Uh, listen to what he says here in 2 Timothy 4.8. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul wrote these words just possibly days, maybe even weeks before his death. He looked for the kingdom. He longed for the kingdom. But the phrase that caught my eye on this when I was considering this prayer that Jesus presented to his disciples was what Paul said here. But unto all them also that love his appearing. That love his appearing. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Do we yearn for the coming of the kingdom of God more than we yearn for our daily bread? Do we yearn for the coming of the kingdom of God in our lifetime? Or have we become so attached to this world that we hope he postpones that kingdom? Where is your passion? Where is your love? James 2.5 says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? That's an expression of love when you pray for the kingdom of God to come. When you pray for his will to be done in earth as it is in heaven. That's an expression of love towards the Father. Again, the spirit of this age has become distracting to many of God's people. I don't mean to throw around accusations or I'm not targeting anyone specifically. I mean I myself need to be shaken up as well about this. I mean when I pray, do I pray for God's kingdom to come in my lifetime? Do I pray that his will be done in my life and his will be done in this earth as it is in heaven? You know, Matthew 6.33, Jesus later on says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So many people today have got this turned around and they're seeking after those things as though God existed to give them those things. And tragically, we get caught up in this. Instead of praying for the Father's kingdom, we're too busy building our own little kingdoms on this temporary world. I'm going to name names. <laughs> I'll probably get in trouble. Creflo Dollar writes, when we pray, believing that we have already received what we are praying, God has no choice but to make our prayers come to pass. It is key to getting results from God as a Christian. Context of this teaching promotes manipulating God, ordering God, commanding God while seeking one's own will on this earth. It has nothing to do with God's will, has nothing to do with God's kingdom. It has everything to do with me, myself, and I. This teaching is very popular, and many people are adhering to this teaching. This teaching is that the will of the believer is preeminent, and the Father should put his on hold. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 5, Thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. We're not to be this way. This is not the way we are to pray. Colossians 1, 16 says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were, were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, then all things that he might have the preeminence. You know what that tells me? That tells me, Creflo Dollar, that I'm not the one in preeminence. He is the one who is to be held in preeminence. He is the one to be held in preeminence. It's his interest that come first. It's his interest that comes first. Now, how can we be a viable part of this prayer in regards to God's interests? And we can be. Do you realize that we can be a viable part of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? How? Well, let me give you some passages. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Mark 16, 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 2 Peter 3, 9. 
The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, when we begin to pray earnestly and sincerely, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, when we begin to genuinely, earnestly, sincerely begin to pray this, that is a declaration of our allegiance to his will and to his interests. And when we sincerely pray for God's interest over our interest, then we own the mission that God has given to all of us who know Jesus as our Savior. When we sincerely pray after this matter, glorifying the Father and holding to his interests as our interests, we begin to discover that our affections of this old world begins to fade. Our desire for people to be saved is heightened. Our longing to be home with the Lord becomes more sweet. Our priorities in life are lifted to our higher plane. There is a transcendence that takes place in our hearts as we anticipate the life to come when Christ reigns on earth. I don't know if any of you have noticed lately, but this world is in a mess. I have spoken with lost men and lost women who even see this. And they're anxious and they're worried about what's going to happen next. Luke 21, 26, Jesus said, Men's hearts failing them for fear and looking after those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. We have the word of hope for these folks. We know what's going to happen. No human leader is going to fix this. Certainly not Biden. And not even Trump can do anything about this. There's no human leader that will fix this mess. In fact, the Bible tells me that a human leader is coming that's not going to fix it, but he's only going to make it worse. But we have the answer because we know whose kingdom is coming. 1 Timothy 1.11 says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. When we pray for God's kingdom and God's will to be done, this is what we are claiming, and that we accept that, we, that which has been entrusted to us. That we have God's highest interest at heart, and that is for lost souls to be, to be saved and for the church to grow. That we are willing to play our part in God's highest purpose. In calling men and women lost souls out of this world for the will of God. Romans 10.13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings, uh, bring uh, tidings of good things. Perhaps if we don't have a burden for lost men, it's because we haven't been, been praying God's interests. The part we all can play begins by giving the Father preeminence that he right, rightly deserves in our life by begin praying for his highest interest to be fulfilled, that the coming of his kingdom and his will be done in earth as it is in heaven, the praying that we would be obedient to his highest interest, that we would own the mission that he has given us to fulfill by playing our role in God's plan. So you can see the first part of this prayer, known as the Lord's Prayer, is very, very instructive. Because it's an expression of our adoration, and it's an expression to our love for God. It's a realigning our hearts to the interests of God. And how best can we show our love to the Father than by this? John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. So the first part of this prayer is in the fulfillment of the first great commandment, love God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. And then the second is like unto it. And that brings us to the second part of this prayer. Uh, loving thy neighbor as thyself. We read in Matthew six eleven, Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Forever, amen. We see three things here, uh, common to all men. 
addressed by the Lord in this prayer. Give us this our daily bread. That talks about our physical needs. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That talks about our relational needs. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Addresses our spiritual needs. Our physical needs, our relational needs, our spiritual needs. Let's talk a little bit about our physical needs. Praying for our physical needs. Matthew 6.11 says, give us this day our daily bread. What this teaches me is that it is perfectly acceptable to the Father that his children ask of him concerning their physical needs while they sojourn here on earth. Again, notice the words, us and ours. Again, this is a reminder for us to not only pray for our own personal needs, and we can do that, but we also must pray for the needs of others as well. Um, we can't forget that. Sometimes we get so focused on our own personal needs that we forget there's others that have needs as well and that we need to pray that, that their needs are met as well. Uh, the asking for daily bread reminds me of another prayer found in, in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9, the writer of Proverbs says, Two things have I required of thee, speaking to the Lord. He said, Deny me them not before I die. He says, Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Least I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or least I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. You know, a popular religious leader says, it's God's will for you to live in prosperity instead of poverty. It's God's will for you to pay your bills and not be in debt. So, my question to this spiritual religious leader is this. Does this mean that if someone is not prosperous but poor, they have, or they have fallen on hard times and they can't pay their bills, does this mean that they're out of God's will? Does this mean that they're out of God's will? You know, Judas Iscariot um, complained about the costly ointment uh, that Mary had poured upon the Lord prior to his burial. And he, claimed, he complained and said that that money could have been, that ointment could have been sold and the money could have used, been used to help the poor. Of course, we understand Judas, Judas didn't give two cents for the poor. What he saw was money slipping through his thieving hands. But I, the point I wish to make out is what the Lord said to Judas. He said in Mark 14, 6, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. Now I bring this up to say that just because a person is poor doesn't mean they're out of God's will. Um, to teach something like this that this religious leader teaches, I think to me is heartless and it rings of a Judas. I have met some of the poorest folks on the planet, but rich in faith, rich in faith and grace of God. In fact, folks that I believe we could learn a thing or two as far as walking with the Lord. Also, does this apply uh, to the, the Apostle Paul? Does this imply that Paul was out of God's will because he was in need? Philippians 4.11 says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, I know how to abound everywhere in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. You know, this prayer is concerning our daily bread. Our daily bread. It's, it's an affirmation of faith that the Father shall supply all our needs according to his riches and glory. Secondly, what this is, it's a declaration of our dependence upon the Father's care for our needs. He knows what we need. He knows what we need. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. It's a declaration of our dependence upon God. Now, 
Does this mean that we sit on our cans and we expect God to fill our cupboards in our homes and that we don't do anything about our own empty cupboards? No, that's exactly, that is not what it means. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, Paul says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the, the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we may, might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. The Bible teaches us we go to work. And we support our families. And we pay our bills. We do that. That's what the Bible tells us. We go to work. We, we earn our living. But we recognize where that earning comes from. That God is the source of that. 1 Timothy 6.17 Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. You know, to me, this is very instructive. You know, the Lord, through, was that me? Okay. The Lord, through Moses, warned Israel that uh, once they got into the land, once they started becoming prosperous, once the land started producing its fruit, Moses warned Israel against forgetting God. Forgetting God. Deuteronomy 8.10, when thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good which he hath given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and the statutes which I command thee this day. Least when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thy heart be lifted up, and thou forgets the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. That's what happens. We forget. We forget. We got good paying jobs. We got nice houses. We got fancy cars. And we forget where all this comes from. We forget that he permits this. We forget that it's from his good hand. The story has been told of a well-known rich man that uh, picked up a penny from the sidewalk. He stooped, stooped down, picked it up, and while near the ground, he was observed staring at the penny. And then he stood up and placed the penny in his pocket. Well, this set wrong with an SJW who saw this, and they began to berate the wealthy man for his greed and love of money. Well, the wealthy man took the penny out of his pocket and he showed the penny to the SJW and he asked them, can you see what is written on the coin? And the SJW said, it reads, in God we trust. The rich man answered, you read that correctly. He says, whenever I find a penny, I pick them up and I read what is written to remind myself from whom all blessings come. And I thank him for that. Give us this day our daily bread. Least we forget where all blessings come from. The praying for one's daily bread is acknowledging that all good gifts come from the Father. It is a reminder for us to be thankful for his daily provision and an acknowledgement that we are dependent upon him irregardless of the size of our bank account. And then we have our relational needs. Matthew 6, 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In Luke's gospel, it's recorded this way, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. You know, if you look at uh, Matthew 6, verses 14 through 15, uh, Jesus includes this at the end of his instruction about prayer. And he has this exhortation uh, concerning forgiveness. 
I personally believe that one of the major obstacles in one's prayer life is the issue of forgiveness, or more significantly, significantly, the lack thereof. I have been privy to people who have prayed with a bitter and an unforgiving spirit. I've listened to the hurt perpetrated on them, as well as I have heard the hatred they hold toward their offender. I've been privy to some who have stopped praying altogether, about, uh, because of some trespass committed against them or some hurt inflicted or some injustice committed against them. Now, I get that this it has a kingdom of heaven context, but that does not tell us that we are to ignore these words of Jesus in regards to forgiveness. If you, mention, if you might recall, I mentioned in a previous lesson that prayer enters into all relationships of life. In the closet, our prayers must seek to embrace not only the Father, but we are to seek to embrace others as well. I think these words are designed to grab our attention concerning the matter of forgiveness and its correlation to an effectual prayer life for the believer. For those of us who hold grudges, who refuse to forgive, what do we do with a passage such as Luke 6.28? Bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. What do we do with a passage where while they are nailing Jesus to the cross, he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What do I do with a passage such as Ephesians 4.31-32? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Do I ignore these passages? Do I claim that it doesn't apply to my case? Or do I simply disobey them? You know, I knew a person who was the target of another person's hate and cruelty and malice. Nothing that this person... I knew could do or say to change the, the malicious behavior of this other person towards them. It seemed to me the more that this person attempted to smooth the troubled waters, attempted to speak with this individual, it seemed like the harder they tried to, to get along with him, the more difficult this other person made it. Uh, and, and it brought great anguish uh, to the heart of my friend. It became so hurtful uh, that my friend, who was the target of this other person's hatred, um, locked themselves in their bedroom and threw themselves face down on the floor and cried out in anguish of heart, Lord, I hate them, I hate them, I hate them. As my friend lay there weeping, They eventually came to the place where instead of crying out their hatred because of this person's assaulting them, instead they began to beg God to give them a forgiving heart. Beg God to show them how they could possibly forgive this person. Beg God to give them the power to love this person in spite of what this person said or this person did to them. They rose up from the floor emotionally spit, but spiritually submitted to the Lord. That's the power of closet prayer. That's the power of closet prayer. It wasn't many days later that this hateful individual came to my friend with news of a great tragedy that had occurred in their life. A great loss had happened to them, and they were totally distraught, totally beside themselves. They didn't know who else to turn to. This very same person who just days prior to this tragedy had nothing kind to say to my friend now came to my friend seeking kindness. Long story short, the Lord used my friend who prayed to him to help them forgive and help them to love this hateful person ended up leading this individual to a saving knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the power of closet prayer. 
what is the true motive behind forgiveness? Proverbs 10.12 tells me, hatred stirreth up strife, but love covereth all sin. How can we express our love for God and yet hold an unforgiving spirit in our heart toward others? Our spiritual needs. Matthew 6.13, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. This speaks to me about praying to the Father's leading and protection in our walk with him. We live in an evil world. We're surrounded by wickedness. There's wickedness in the world and there's wickedness in our own hearts. Now, God does not lead anybody into temptation to sin. No, we step into that mess on our own. James 1, 13 through 15 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. See, that doesn't even make any sense to me. If God can't be tempted at evil, why would he lead somebody into evil? But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. No, we walk into that mess. God doesn't lead us into it. Now, I've seen among my brothers and sisters that we can get kind of cocky in our walk. We can get kind of cocky in our walk. We think we've got it all together. We think that we can handle things. Proverbs 16, 18 tells me pride goeth before destruction and our spirit before a fall. I don't know how many times I've seen that play out. I don't know how many times I've seen that play out. You get some of these folks who are so full of self, so confident about their righteousness, and then what happens? Remember Peter's, Peter's boast to the Lord when, when the Lord told Peter that he was going to deny him. Peter said in Matthew 26, 33, Though all men should, shall be offended because of thee, yet, I, yet will I never be offended. What happened? What happened? In Luke's gospel, we're informed that Jesus prayed for Peter about this matter. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now well, the Father doesn't lead anybody into temptation. If anything, the Father makes a way to escape out of temptation. Or if it fits his purpose, as with Peter, he enables us to bear it for his glory. First. Corinthians 10.13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. This peace here about this prayer, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, that's a prayer of protection. That's a prayer of guidance. That's a prayer that reminds me that I don't stand a chance on my own. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Wherefore, let them that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Galatians 6.1-3 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fall, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of weakness, considering thyself. Least thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Now this to me is a prayer of dependence upon the Lord's protection. This to me is motivation. Also to pray for our pastors, to pray for our leaders in this church, uh, to pray for those who are on the mission field, Pray for those who are attempting to kick addiction. Pray for those who are facing family struggles. Pray for those who are experiencing adversity on the workplace. Uh, pray for one another that the Father will protect them and lead them through whatever it is they're facing. 
This is a prayer for God's protection. A man once said that intercessory prayer is the prayer that lies closest to the heart of Christ, for it is a high, high priestly prayer as one advocate, advocates to the Father on behalf of another. So in closing, he finishes, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Do you see what he does there? We begin with our hearts focused on the Father. Then we pray for our needs and the needs of our brothers and sisters. And then he refocuses our hearts on the one to whom we pray for protection. The only one that can provide protection. The only one that, is, that does that the kingdom is his and who has the power and who has the glory forever and ever. Amen. So we can see in this prayer presented to his disciples that it actually is a fulfillment of the great commandment and the, and the one like unto it. Love for the Father and love for others. Father in heaven, there is so much here in this prayer. I've only scratched the surface. But Father in heaven, we just want to exalt you and glorify you and just praise you. Because indeed, yours is the kingdom. You are the power. You are the authority. And I am so grateful and so thankful, Father, that we can call upon you as our Father. Now, Lord God, I pray that we would become a part of thy kingdom uh, thy will, thy interests, that Father in heaven, that we would set thee as preeminent in our lives with our, with our spouses, with our children, with those that we work with, those that we serve with, those we minister. I pray, Lord God, that our lives would be lives that would exalt you in everything that we say and we do. And we also pray, Father in heaven, and look to you to provide for us and protect us. And Father in heaven, if there is any ill will towards others. May we ask of you the grace that we might be able to forgive, that we might do as Christ did and love those that hate us. We thank you and praise you, knowing that indeed you empower us by your indwelling spirit. And we thank you for that spirit. And we thank you for, his, for your word. Now we ask that we leave with your blessing. In Christ's name, amen. It's up to you.